Um, so welcome to this uh, Scotland Salon event. Um, well, we're part of the Academy of Ideas network of salons, um, which Mo just outlined there, um, and which is really an attempt to bring people together in a convivial, friendly company, um, tolerant but ready to uh, challenge robustly other people's views. Um, my hope is that you will participate in this discussion and, and feel comfortable uh, to do so. But if you just want to sit and listen um, and spectate, that, that's entirely fine um, if you prefer. Um, the Academy are providing tech support today um, and during lockdown, none of the, the small staff team there have been furloughed. So if you do feel um, that you've enjoyed it and you'd like to try and support this, um, there's a, uh, an opportunity. Uh, I think Mo will put something up on the screen um, for you to make a donation if you so wish. No pressure. Um, so moving to t this evening, um, education never seems to be far from our headlines these days. Um, if you think back to some of the school issues um, and education issues that have happened during lockdown, the, the impact of school closures on learning and health, um, whether blended learning will work in schools or universities, part-time or full-time returns, uh, social distancing for five-year-olds, whether that's even possible, um, the exam fiasco, which now almost seems a long time ago because we're now more in, uh, we're moving into a masks or potential masks fiasco um, uh, as, as, as that issue is pushing itself to the fore in Scotland, particularly this week. Um, the format of today will be along these lines. So we're going to have two short introductions, around 10 minutes from our speakers. Um, and then I'll throw the floor open, the virtual floor open for questions, uh, which are great, but a, a conversation is better. So really, I want people to try and share what they think, their, their experiences, their opinions. Um, but again, there's no pressure to do that. Um, I'll, I'll take around five or six points, questions, and then return to our speakers um, for them to answer direct questions that are made to them um, and, and say what they think of the discussion so far. And then uh, kind of return on that format, uh, kind of to and fro over the next uh, period of time, up to about eight o'clock. Just before eight, when we're finishing officially, um, I'll, I'll give Penny and uh, uh, Lindsay a chance to sum up um, uh, in, in the order that they speak. So in, in terms of the order that they speak, first of all, we have Professor uh, Lindsay Patterson, who's Professor of Education Policy at the University of Edinburgh. He specializes in sociology of education, uh, Scottish politics, quantitative methods in social research and education policy and um, his full uh, biography should be uh, appearing on your screen um, shortly um, if, you, if you need to find out any more. So welcome to Lindsay. Um, second, we have uh, Dr. Penny Lewis, um, who lectures in architecture and urban planning in the School of Social Sciences at the University of Dundee. Uh, she is a parents advocate and campaigner and her full uh, biography should be appearing on your screen soon as well. So welcome to you both um, and thank you very much for uh, volunteering to introduce, uh, introduce this discussion. Um, so what I'll do is just without any further ado is I'll move on to Lindsay who's going to have 10 minutes which I'll, I'll, I'll start the clock um, <laughs> but uh, you know, nine minutes will do, 11 minutes will be fine. Um, over to you Lindsay. Thank you Simon and thank you indeed for the opportunity to contribute. I really do look forward to the discussion after we've made these introductory remarks. These short introductory comments are in two parts. The first sets the context from before coronavirus came along. Then the second asks how the past six months might have changed things. 
And evidence relating to the context is itself in two parts. One body of evidence is from comments by examiners on what pupils were learning in 2019. The second is statistics about the state of Scottish education as a whole in 2019. And I'd emphasize that these comments and statistics relate to the period before COVID-19 was even heard of. They are the context in which the school closures have had that effect. So I start with some official comments on how Scottish pupils performed in the public examinations in 2019 at higher level and at national five. That's the senior level and the mid-secondary level. These official comments come from the Scottish Qualifications Authority that runs the exams. Every year, their examiners issue reports on how candidates performed in each subject. And the comments last year, it has to be said, were not encouraging about the state of Scottish learning. In English, for example, the report said that some candidates tended to assert rather than analyse. Candidates in English need to ensure, the report further said, that they are fully addressing all aspects of a question and they are demonstrating complex analysis rather than assertion of opinions. In mathematics, performance was undermined by weak algebraic skills and weak numeracy. In biology, most candidates had difficulty providing a brief summary of the method for their experiment. And there were similar comments in chemistry and in biology, chemistry and physics at all levels, many candidates were unable to demonstrate accurate knowledge and understanding of definitions and terminology. It has to be said, I think that science without experiment and without accuracy is nothing at all. In geography, as in English, candidates tended to make stereotyped generalizations without evidence. In history, as well as in geography, too many candidates were using what the SQA called pre-prepared answers or analysis. In other words, regurgitating model answers learnt by heart. In French at higher, there were problems with candidates' grasp of spelling, genders, plurals, accents, adjectival agreement and tenses. That doesn't really leave very much in any language. And in the project for business management, many candidates only listed findings, making very few analytical points and failing to base their analysis of findings on researched evidence. Now, these comments are all very damning, the kind of report that a parent would hate to receive about their child. Statistical evidence shows that the examples that I've just quoted from the examiners of weak performance are not mere anecdotes. They are indicative of extensive problems. Last year, the proportion of school leavers from local authority schools who had passed three or more hires was lower than in any year since the most recent reform of the hires in 2015. In contrast, from 2010 up to 2015, the proportion getting three or more hires had steadily risen as it had been doing for the previous half century. The same was true of passing five or more hires or passing one or more. The proportion getting five or more national fives in mid-secondary was lower than at any point since 2013. Now one reason for these recent falls has been decline in pass rates, but there's also evidence that pupils have an increasingly restricted choice of subjects available to them in the middle years of their secondary school around S4 fourth year. With the old standard grade which national five replaced, it was normal for schools to require most pupils to take eight subjects, and that's still normal in the independent schools but more than half of local authority schools now restrict the choice to five or six subjects and a mere 11% allow eight subjects. In contrast, 93% of schools allowed eight subjects two decades ago. Not since the 1970s has such a low proportion of pupils had access to a broad curriculum in the middle years of secondary school. There's also evidence that people are turning away from education after they reach the leaving age of 16. The proportion staying on to sixth year was last year the lowest for a decade. This matters because sixth year is when students in Scotland of middling ability 
have been able to pick up extra hires or to improve those which they have already passed in fifth year. It's hardly surprising then to find that the entry rate by school leavers to higher education last autumn was the lowest since 2015 and indeed for male students it was the lowest since 2013. These statistics will refer to the culmination of schooling, the last half of secondary schooling, but we also know that the problems start further back in early secondary and primary. In the annual survey which used to assess attainment and literacy and numeracy, performance declined steadily from 2011 to 2016 in primary and early secondary. The declining higher performance last year is probably in part just the appearance at the end of secondary school of weaknesses that were growing five years ago at younger ages. Most famously, the Scottish results in the internationally recognised programme for international student assessment that were reported last December showed, showed a large decline compared to a decade and a half ago. These PISA results did show a small rise in reading attainment compared to the previous PISA results three years ago, but that only took reading back to where it had been in 2015, and there was no improvement last, improvement last year in mathematics or science. So despite the massive upheaval to the school curriculum that started in 2010, Scottish performance is no better than it was a decade ago, and in reading, mathematics and science, it is worse than it was in the early years of the century. Now the reasons for the decline are complex, and I hope perhaps that that might be a major focus of our discussion this evening, but almost certainly the reasons relate at least in part to that reform of the curriculum known as Curriculum for Excellence. The essence of the problem with this curriculum is that it emphasises skills and has almost nothing to say about knowledge and yet learning of any sustained kind is impossible without knowledge. Now, of course, skills matter, but a further point is that the only way to acquire skills reliably is through embedding them in a rich context of knowledge. That in turn requires the training of memory. Learning in general, in fact, can be thought of sending, as sending things to long-term memory by means of assimilating new information to understandings that are firmly embedded in the mind. That's what knowledge is, the content of long-term memory plus mechanisms for retrieving it, which is why knowledge is fundamental to any effective education. Now I'm going to come back to these points about Curriculum for Excellence briefly at the end after my second point, which is about the effects of COVID and the closures. So this is the second part of my introductory remarks. There was at best, it has to be said, patchy access to proper teaching during the lengthy closure from March to August. The most optimistic, realistic estimates suggest that children were spending no more than two or three hours each day on lessons, whether online or offline. In fact, the research shows that a quarter of children had no lessons at all. What's more, access to lessons varied very strongly by social circumstances. Independent schools provided the most support, but so also did local authority schools serving affluent areas. The school closures will thus have exacerbated inequality, probably by as much as the equivalent of four years of the inequality that normally grows during children's time at school. That this matters is obvious, but the ways in which it matters relate to the problems with the present curriculum. When you have a curriculum that is not based on knowledge, then children have not been given the opportunity to train their memories properly. To have survived educationally during the last six months would have required a pupil to have a well-developed body of knowledge on which to draw, a knowledge that was thorough enough to be able to assimilate new knowledge without detailed or frequent encouragement by the teacher. Scotland's curriculum has not recently tried to develop that kind of autonomous knowledge, and so the lengthy closures this year will have left many children bereft of understanding. So to sum up these brief opening remarks, I'll make three points in conclusion. One, Scottish education has moved away from knowledge to skills, 
and with that move it has neglected the training of memory with the consequences of declining understanding and attainment that I summarised. Second, surviving the school closures educationally required children to have knowledge on which they could build and that in turn required a well-developed memory. Third, so I'd suggest that the new Scottish curriculum was particularly ill-equipped to prepare children for the educational catastrophe that has now happened. Thank you. Thanks very much, Lindsay. That was um, short and sweet and very informative, some really great ideas there. Um, we'll move straight on to Penny. Yes, because Lindsay is so good on the evidence, um, then that allows me to um, rely largely on anecdote. And anecdote, basically, as a, as a parent, um, I have two children, one at university in Edinburgh, and one who's trying to decide if she should go to university. I work in higher education, and I work across two institutions, one in the UK, Dundee, and one in China, in Wuhan. Um, and as a teacher, I like to think of my students as um, people in the process of becoming adults, or actually adults. Um, and um, I think one of the most interesting things in university culture at the moment is that though many of us don't think of our students as consumers, we're encouraged to do, to do so. But one of the sort of reoccurring themes of discussions among academic staff is the problem that students lack independence when it comes to their capacity to learn and that there's a degree of immaturity in the way in which they approach the question of scholarships. And that, that issue, um, which is facing all um, Scottish universities, I'm sure English universities too, um, is clearly a consequence of the um, questions or the issues that um, Lindsay raised. Okay, when my kids uh, were at primary school, I was active in the parent council in primary and, and secondary school. I campaigned against the no to name person campaign uh, successfully, uh, part of the successful campaign. Uh, I was unsuccessful in my campaigning with others against the smacking ban. But throughout my experience of being involved in parent council and having children in school, one of my most serious concerns, which I've tried to articulate wherever I possibly can, is my concern about the curriculum for excellence. But I'm also concerned um, about the Scottish Schools Parental Involvement Act, which was introduced in 2006 after devolution, um, which I feel has really taken away any sense of parental accountability as far as school and, and education is concerned. I can't discuss um, all of those things. And I'm really glad that Lindsay uh, raised uh, the question of curriculum for excellence, which I think we can look at in more detail in the discussion. But I've been thinking about the last sort of 20 years, uh, looking back since devolution and thinking about my children in, in preparation for this. My sister is a teacher and she lives in England and she has a son going to university in England. And sometimes when I talk to people in England, they're under the illusion that Scottish education is very good. Um, it's based partly on its past reputation. It's based on the fact that a lot of teachers think the continuation of local authorities as controllers of education rather than central government is a positive thing. It's based on the fact that people think it must be better not to have a Tory government in charge of education. Uh, but fundamentally, that, that sort of <clears throat> sentiment is based on the idea that we have tuition fees. And I think to a certain, we don't have tuition fees. And I think to a certain extent, the fact that education is still free, higher education is still free in Scotland, 
has to a certain extent masked that capacity to engage critically both with higher education uh, and the more, more broader debate. So I really welcome the fact that parents have got much more involved in the process of thinking about school as a consequence of, of COVID. <clears throat> and um, I think that we're now in a position whereby we can have a proper conversation. I'm always really struck when I hear Lindsay speaking that he talks about education with a sort of depth and a sense of reflection on processes and a sense of past as well as present, um, which is really absent from any of the political debate on education uh, as it stands. And I think that this is the moment, if you like, um, to show um, teachers and parents to show that they take the question of education much more seriously. So in these introductory marks, remarks, <clears throat> I tried to think about um, two things. The first thing was that I spoke to somebody from the Us For Them campaign and um, she was saying I never realised how important education was until this moment, till there was the absence of it. Um, and I, I, I think that that's sort of, um, that's very significant thing for us to, to think about, to have some sort of fundamental discussion about why education is important. So I'm going to say a little bit about that. Why, why is that so many parents were so keen to get their kids back to school? And the second thing I want to talk about is this process of the expansion of education, that given that um, the way things have developed, we would have expected perhaps that a lot of young people would opt out of going into higher education as a result of the fact that much of the teaching will be blended or online. Um, but in fact, what's happened is the opposite to that, that the tendency is for more people to go into higher education or taking up places. And we can only assume that's because the job market is, is looking so bad. And I think it, it really does raise <clears throat> to the fore the question of how big can higher education be in Scotland? And it's an important question that we, we should be addressing. Do we just expand it indefinitely? And what impact does that have on the standards academic standards um, that exist within higher education. So on this first point, uh, why, why was everybody so keen to get the kids back to school? There's the obvious answer that they were driving you nuts or <laughs> they were driving people nuts. Uh, and there's the really good answer that people needed to work. And it became very clear that uh, the absence of schools meant that uh, people were unable to, to work and had a lot of problems negotiating what to do with children without their grandparents to help. Um, and I think the Us For Them campaign has been excellent in trying to get the schools open and then establish some sense of uh, a return to norms. Um, but I think it's interesting that this is an inversion of the historical condition where usually the authorities insisted that we sent our children to school and then parents obliged. And we're now, we've been in this position under COVID where it's parents that have been insisting that their kids be allowed to go to school. And there's been a certain reticent of, uh, in government and I think that's worth us uh, discussing uh, and explaining and I think one of the reasons for that I mean Lindsay may have more insight on this but one of the reasons is that I feel that while parents are in their gut understand why education is important um, politicians don't seem to recognize um, that question or really have uh, the capacity to articulate why po politicians 
why uh, education is important. So, you know, Gavin Williamson over the last few few weeks, he keeps on saying, and the, the, the same sentiment has been expressed in, in Scotland as well. They keep saying that we must get the children back to school because of their mental health, as if, you know, education's purpose really was to ensure that uh, young people um, didn't default to the normal condition of, of, of poor mental health, which is a very strange way uh, of thinking about uh, education. And historically, I think Lindsay sort of has uh, recorded this. Um, there's a tendency to instrumentalize education at the moment across the UK, but in Scotland in particular, to say we must have education because it will overcome social inequality, or we must have an education because uh, it will um, bring about economic growth. Um, and I think that um, there's a moment where we should just stop and say education matters in its own terms. So that's my, my first point, really. Uh, one of the key ways in which all of us progress from childhood to adulthood uh, is through education. We have knowledge, we have academic and personal skills that are developed through education, and that is what equips us to participate as equals in the adult world. And I'm a big fan of uh, the philosopher Hannah Arendt, uh, who's, who wrote about this, this problem or question of education in the 1950s in the US. She said that you should think about the raising of children in two ways. There's two aspects to it. There's one that's almost like the way that animals raise their children, which is the very basic instinct um, to feed and clothe and shelter. Um, you're young and it's very straightforward uh, in, in many ways. It's about conventions and there's a training and you're providing uh, the things that uh, children need or babies need, young, young animals need in order to, to survive basically. And then she says there's a second aspect to education which is what makes us human rather than animal and that's the process of um, helping human beings mature to go from childhood to adulthood. And I, I'd kind of like to initiate a public discussion about that, about to what extent we are uh, contributing to that in the way in which we, we think about um, uh, the process of education at the moment and she didn't mean you teach them how to use a bank card she meant actually that to know the world and to know what we understood in terms of academic knowledge and to have some insight into the knowledge that had been accumulated by mankind uh, to date was an important part of being able to play a full role in society and by the time you got to adulthood um, you would be able to do that because you had been exposed to uh, the knowledge that we that we had. So when when you see primary school children appearing on Facebook uh, this week with their P1 uh, uniforms on or secondary school students with their S1, my heart sort of jumps and I always like press the like button. And I think we press the like button because we recognize that when children are initiated into the process of school, it's not just they and their families as individuals that are, are embarking on a journey, but collectively, when we educate our children, they are embarking on the process of becoming adults and they're embarking on the process of becoming part of the world. And um, I like the fact that Hannah Arendt talks about it in, in this way. She talks about childhood as a temporary phase uh, not something that should particularly be celebrated. There's something in our culture at the moment which really overemphasizes um, the importance of childhood and 
really um, doesn't uh, exude a sense of confidence about the fact that we have something to teach young people. And we have some information and knowledge and understanding that's worth transferring to the next generation. And to a certain extent, this sounds really basic, but I feel that it's kind of fundamental to one of the problems that we have in uh, discussing education and in promoting and think about thinking about education in the right way. And the other point that Aaron makes is that um, being in the world and going to school, which is what uh, we ask children to do, is, is tough, it's quite hard. Uh, and the family and our private lives are the world in which we can recover from that process of being in, in the tough world. So the family provides protection and everything that you need. And education is challenging because it's about learning the process of becoming an adult. And I think one of the, the difficulties we have is that we've confused that private and public world, and we kind of lose a sense of where education sits in relation to those two things. So quite often schools feel that their job is to be really protective of children rather than to expose children to judgment or to new ideas or, or anything else. Um, and I think that, that that sort of underpins some of the difficulties um, that we're having at this present period of time. Um, if you look at the um, points that Lindsay made, I mean, they really are finish, Penny. Very, very clearly expressed okay. in, um, in the way in which assessment takes place in Scotland at the moment. I think we could have some discussion about that. I just want to say a little bit about universities. I'll be very brief. Um, I think in, in universities, there are a lot of things that we can criticize. They are overly bureaucratic. They spend a lot of money on marketing and selling the experience of university. Um, they've become very confused about what, what they're imparting, whether it's knowledge or skills. Their estate departments have got really carried away sometimes. The student unions are misnamed in that they're social clubs rather than unions. Um, and they tend to sort of baby the the students rather than exposing them to the real world. And I think there's a number of problems in terms of um, higher education at the moment that could very easily be discussed. But I think the main problem uh, is, as I said at the beginning, that um, to a certain extent, we're not taking higher education very seriously. Uh, there's almost an idea as if it's an ever expanding pool and if we can't employ people, uh, we can keep putting them in higher education. I think that's having an impact on the quality of higher education that we're providing. It's leading to a lot of grade inflation and a lot of pressure on, on the system. Um, and I think that we should uh, treat young adults uh, with a greater degree of maturity and encourage them to opt into the university system uh, with some sense of commitment rather than just seeing it as a process that they're pushed along. Thanks. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you, Penny. I was just about to shut you up there, but um, you, you managed to stop. Thanks. So a huge amount to consider there. And, and um, I think both Lindsay and Penny have kind of, uh, in their own particular ways, uh, uh, outlined some of the issues they consider to be um, issues with education problems and what education should be for and where we can potentially take it. Uh, th this week and, and, and previous last last couple of weeks has been an awful lot of anger in the public about education as well particularly around the exams and uh, boiling away in Scotland at the moment is the masks stuff so um, uh, you know, I, I'm sure these kind of particular issues will come up normally when I'm chairing a session 
there's lots of people sitting in front of me and I can see their faces and I can point to people and I can smile at people and I can say, okay, that's enough. Uh, I can't do any of that here. Uh, so I'm going to be quite interventionist. If, you, if, you, if you're going on too long, I'll just kind of try and kind of jog you along a wee bit in terms of your, your contributions. And also in terms of trying to guide the discussion, I'm just, we're just going to go with people in the order that they indicate in. So I can see some hands up already, which is good. Um, don't sit on a question. If you have a question in your head and at the end of this, you haven't asked it and you're annoyed with yourself, you're only going to have yourself to blame. So please come in. Nobody's right. Nobody's wrong in this kind of environment. We're, we're friends and um, etc. So the first hand is Linda Murdoch. Um, um, and I'll hand over to Linda. I'm going to take four or five and then I'll go back to Lindsay and Penny. Okay, Linda. Thanks, Simon. Can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> um, I just wanted to add a little bit to what Lindsay said around how the curriculum for uh, excellence has become about skills. Um, I think that the kind of problem goes back to the early part of the 21st century when um, in England they had this, this thing called the social and emotional aspects of learning in 2005 and then they had the curriculum for excellence in, in Scotland and what the, what the discussion before these was really about was uh, how knowledge is important but actually it's a lot to do with the self-esteem and the, the, the framework of the child um, that's, that's the framework of the child's psychology um, in other words, are they, have they got the right frame of mind to learn? And um, so there was a discussion about that going on uh, before these, this, these two, the curriculum for excellence and the, its, it's counterpart down south, SEAL. And basically what happened, I think, was that educators said, yeah, knowledge is really, really important. However, um, children can't learn unless they've got the right framework, or the right um, frame of mind, the right self-esteem, um, the right well-being. And I think that the moment that they conceded that, education became less about what you learn, like the transformative elements of knowledge itself, and more about how you learn. And that meant the focus in education became much more about um, managing the behaviour of students and behaviour pupils. Uh, towards uh, learning skills in order to not just survive the labour market, um, which is obviously what a lot of the employability discussions are about, but to actually su survive life. And so I think when educators conceded that, um, what you saw was the ascendancy of the whole idea of learning to learn and the descendancy of, of knowledge as a transformative thing in its own right. You can really see that that's now codified in the curriculum for excellence um, and, and down south in its counterparts. And what you see here, there's really uh, knowledge has really been has completely lost its authority. So I wasn't really surprised when COVID came along and they cancelled the exams and there wasn't much of a peep because it was really what you could really see there was that there was a concern about students' mindsets or pupils' mindsets. Um, and how it might impact on them if they had to set exams in, in this particular context because well-being is now really uh, what education is about. I mean, just one more thing about higher education, and I think it reflects the whole view of exams nowadays. Uh, I work in, at the University of Glasgow, which is our Russell's Group institution, and today 
uh, we all received an email to tell us that they were no longer in the future, that's next year, going to do what we understand as exams, which is, um, you know, at, at, under timed uh, control conditions. Um, and they were going to bring in completely now much more elements of learning as you go along. And what they now call those exams that we understand as exams is uh, high stakes assessments. So exams that we all sat when we were at school are now called high stakes assessments. Um, quite pejorative because it's associated with gambling. Um, and so they're basically saying we won't allow students to gamble because that's not the right frame of mind for learning. Okay, thank you. Very interesting. Uh, Diane Elliott is next. Hi. Um, yeah, my name's uh, Diane, obviously, and I've run um, a primary school in Los Angeles and a secondary school in Aberdeen. And what we did in Los Angeles was we implemented project-based learning. And when we opened the school here in Aberdeen, um, we didn't know if we were going to be able to implement project-based learning because it was a secondary school and we knew we had to work towards exams. So what we did was um, we worked with the SQA who came and talked about the curriculum for excellence and how to integrate subjects and we were able to do that in the school. It's a very small school, it was maybe 20 to 25 students in all, it was really small and it was sort of experimental and we, um, we lobbied the government for probably two years to say um, could you take a look at this school and could you um, consider opening smaller schools such as autonomous schools like free schools in England um, but that had very little interest um, from the government so uh, we were unable to become funded or so we eventually closed the school however the project-based learning did work in the secondary school um, curriculum for excellence works in primary schools but doesn't work in secondary schools because of the exams so what we did was we became really flexible with exams and we um, didn't we didn't have students take a lot of exams in one year so we spread them out over two to three years so a 15 year old could take a higher exam and a 17 year old could take a national five so the exams were really flexible but we also um, put in place the project-based learning which kept students you know you know people are talking about autonomous knowledge uh, independence and maturity and we were able to do that for the students, we were able to implement all of that. And we had students come to us from mainstream schools and they weren't, you know, they just weren't thriving in the schools. And they were able to turn their learning around and really do well and go on to, you know, colleges or universities or, or open small businesses um, because of this self-belief and self-esteem. So we were able to do that but it was on a very small scale however just thinking of now and the COVID-19 um, I'm just wondering if we had these smaller schools in place would it be more flexible would we be able to create learning pods of schools um, I don't know but it would be really interesting to just take a look at sort of just redesigning education and what we could put in place to not only to make sure that the students are have the well-being and everything in place but to be able to respond to situations that we've we've got right now we don't know how long it's going to go on um so yeah that's that's my comments brilliant uh, interesting 
interesting point. Uh, okay, Shirley Laws next, please. I, I think there's, there's an awful lot to be said here. And I think um, I'm particularly interested in the whole, um, the whole knowledge um, issues regarding knowledge that both Lindsay and Penny um, brought up. But I wanted to just slightly focus on what actually happened when schools closed and teachers were required largely to be teaching online. Um, and I found it was interesting that most people, even people in education, have never heard of blended learning, which comes a little bit, or at least contributes a little bit to what I think is a very sad state about the way um, teachers, what teachers know about teaching and learning and how they go about it. And I think that's got a lot to do with instrumentalization and an abandonment of a belief in knowledge as such. Um, and two words that, and, and a focus, a very central focus on, on exam performance, rather than looking at education as, as someone said, a transformative project and knowledge for its own sake. And so, you know, you talk about covering the curriculum and the delivery of the curriculum, which really betrays, I think, a very superficial understanding about teaching and learning. And so I guess my question would really, to, 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 to anybody who wants to pick up on it, is were teachers ill-equipped um, to reorientate their approach to teaching and learning when they had to then suddenly look at technology and really understand how they were going to um, reorientate the, the way that they work with children online um, and that they really didn't know what they were doing is what I'm suggesting. I think there were some people who were ready to experiment and I think quite a, you know, an amount of that was going on, but mostly it had to be done really quickly. And so what happened, it seems to me, there was a very heavy focus on just worksheet and death by worksheet and kids were drowning in worksheets rather than a real thinking about how you, um, you really teach using technology and online. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I want really to ask. I mean, do you think teachers, part of the problem of the, what I think has been a very poor showing across teaching and I do I mean I work in England I work at the UCL Institute of Education um, so it's it you know perhaps Scotland's different but it seems to me that a lot of very poor practice has been going on that's just been time filling rather than getting to grips with technology and how technology might be a, a useful tool in, in education. Okay Thank you. Um, I'm going to go for uh, Marcus next. Hi. Um, so I'm a parent of two boys and um, we had them both home um, for, uh, for the COVID period. Now, for a long time now, I think there's been a kind of tension between parents and schools over who's responsible for bringing up our children. Um, and I mean, in terms of like the moral and ethics and uh, their views about the world and how they feel about the world, I think more and more the schools have felt that that's their, um, their domain and not our domain as, as, as parents. And that was a tension that existed when we we're both sitting in different places. We're sitting here in the home 
and the schools are sitting over there. But with the, with the bringing education online and into the home, you had that tension brought into the home. And I find actually it's been very difficult for the last few months and particularly difficult for my, um, my wife, who's been more, trying to get more involved in the learning and teaching of our kids. Um, because the school was still not trusting us. They're still trying to do everything while keeping their parents at a kind of distance. So there wasn't any information about what was going on. There wasn't any involvement of the parents, but the school didn't have the capacity to do everything. So in fact, they didn't do very much at all. So I think my point is that there's tensions within education um, and, and in their view of, 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 adult, of, of us as adults and parents, and maybe a distrust from parents about what's going on in education. You bring that into the, the living room, you bring that into the bedroom, and you actually, that tension comes into the home it makes it a very tense situation. And I've found it very difficult to have that, that relationship with the school, where the school was sitting on my living room table, um, keeping me out from my children's experience, but not, but not making a very good job of it. That was all. Okay, all right. Yeah. No, I, th I think the, the, the role of leadership has been particularly important um, and, and there's been a, uh, a real variation in the different leaders uh, within education from, from my experience of primary school and secondary school. Um, thanks, Marcus. Uh, we're going to go to Joanna Williams now, please. Um, yeah, I really wanted to come back on some of the points that Linda was making around the um, very, it seems to me, detrimental impact of the focus on mental health in education. Because I think the past few months have really driven home to me exactly how detrimental this is. Um, because arguments for stopping exams, for not doing online learning, for not reopening schools, and then for reopening schools have all been made or been framed in the language of mental health and whether it will be either detrimental for students' mental health or positive for their mental health. Um, and it's, it seems to me that we've almost um, lost a, a vocabulary for talking about education education in anything other than instrumental terms with mental health to the fore and I think that's really tragic when we can't even um, talk about these things. Um, there's one survey that's come out today I'm not sure if people have had a chance to see it yet I've just read reports of it not the actual research itself and it's saying that uh, teenagers mental health has improved during lockdown um, because they haven't had any longer uh, they didn't have pressure either in terms of friendships or exam stress or kind of pressure to keep up with homework and this is being celebrated as almost a, a good thing a success of the lockdown period and I think it's terrible um, and I think a thing that that becomes very obvious here is that again we're unable to conceive almost of, of pressure on young people and this hints at something that Penny was getting at in her introduction we're unable to conceive of pressure anything other than than kind of stressful and a very negative thing and if we do prioritize mental health above all else and we say that mental health improves when children don't go to school and don't have this pressure to um, succeed academically then the logical conclusion to draw from that is that we shut schools down on a, a permanent basis and retreat into the home ad infinitum um, my concern and I guess my, my question if you like at the end here is is just what schooling will look like now post-COVID and again when there is this emphasis it seems like permanently on mental health uh, certainly in England there's been talk of and I think it, it's passed uh, the suggestion that that 
uh, GCSE content should be cut for students who are taking exams next year. So poetry, for example, has been made optional from the English GCSE. And again, this is kind of to take the pressure off young people so that they're not um, going to suffer so much stress to have to cram in a two-year curriculum into 18 months. Um, but interestingly, what's not being cut back is the PSHE curriculum, which would seem to me a, a place to cut back uh, because the therapeutic ethos, the overcoming of trauma is still seen as a very important role that schools should play. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'm going to take Jenny and after Jenny Cunningham, I'm going to go back to uh, Lindsay and uh, Penny uh, to, to kind of sum up some of their ideas so far. Okay, Jenny. Right. Hi, thanks very much. I wanted to just return to this whole question of knowledge um, and I just wanted to explore it a little bit more. Um, um, Lindsay, in your blog, you made a very, very important point about the curriculum for excellence. And I, th I think we need to understand that it's, it is a very fundamentally different um, objective um, to what most of us would consider a knowledge-based education and you made the point um, in your blog that um, this uh, curriculum for excellence is really built on this idea of constructivism in other words that um, out should go these boring bodies of knowledge and specialist sort of areas of expertise and in should come a curriculum um, which is very much framed around children being enabled, um, as you put it, to construct knowledge for themselves. And from this, of course, you can see how the whole orientation is then towards acquisition of skills um, rather than the acquisition of knowledge as, as we, or certainly I think most of us understand it. But I, th I think that should be teased out a bit because um, and so you made the point that knowledge is all about having understanding systems that enable you to commit things to long-term memory. And I just find that perhaps it's a shorthand for something, but um, as far as I'm concerned, in contrast to the sort of constructivists, um, most knowledge-based educationalists would emphasize that knowledge is the production of society. It's not about the individual in terms of actually learning. It's about really imbuing individuals with the, the best of the knowledge that society has. And in that sense, I would sort of understand um, knowledge as being things like conceptual knowledge, specialized knowledge in, in, in different areas, the sort of procedural knowledge, the you know, understanding of method, valuation, and factual knowledge. Um, and I, I, think it, I think it comes down to how we conceive really of um, sort of conceptual knowledge, which just seems to have been almost eliminated from the curriculum for excellence, or it's introduced in very bitty ways around something like, well, what is electricity? 
you know, or, or, or what is environmentalism. It's introduced in all of these sort of ways without really um, thinking about how children and young adults um, actually master thinking and, and memory. And I, I suppose um, looking at it from a sort of Vygotskyan point of view, where Vygotsky really stressed that conceptual learning is so important in terms of actually higher mental processes that are governed by things like sign systems, language, number systems, and so forth, but are also characterized by uh, a voluntary control of those kind of mediated systems of knowledge. And, and that's what seems to be completely absent from the curriculum for excellence. The idea that specialist areas of knowledge have different forms of knowledge, different systems of knowledge, different sign systems. And that to actually master these, you have to actually be able to understand the system as a whole and have voluntary control over it. So it's not just about mastering memory, but also mastering the process of thinking. So I'd really like yeah. you to explore that a bit further. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. Um, I'm going to go to Lindsay, first of all, then. Um, uh, seems, seems pertinent after that point. Uh, Lindsay, what are your kind of uh, thoughts or answers to some of the questions that have been raised so far? Well, I think I'd make a couple of points. I and mean, I think this is a fascinating discussion and it's very interesting the way it's, it's kind of opened up um, so many areas that we, we can't cover them all, of course. But let me deal, first of all, with the question of knowledge. Yes, I was rather using uh, far too much of a shorthand for the research here. But what I'm drawing on there is psychological research on how we learn things. And essentially, the key thing here is the development of so-called schema, what a psychologist calls schema. In other words, we, we develop a, a framework of understanding. So for example, one of the earliest schema that human beings ever acquire is a schema for gravity. If I drop something off this table, it will fall to the floor. And we learn that, we learn that certainly in the first few months of life, maybe of course that we even learn it before that. Um, but there's lots of other schema. Multiplication tables are a schema. That's, that's, that's the thing. We don't we don't have to work out every time we see seven times nine, we don't have to do it by hand, as it were. We have a schema in which we fit seven times nine. That is the rationale, of course, for getting young children to learn multiplication tables, not as a kind of a, a sort of punishment and, and not as a routine for its own sake, but rather because unless you have the multiplication tables embedded in your mind, in other words, in a schema inside your mind, then you're not going to find it possible to do any mathematics properly beyond that. Other schemas would be, say, photosynthesis, or in a, the concept of a plot or narrative or character in a film or in a novel. Um, another schema might be, um, let's say, take a topical one, the process of decolonization after the Second World War, or to take an example from one of the examiner's reports I referred to earlier, um, an understanding of the grammatical structure of most European languages, so that the next time you learn a new European language, you kind of recognize uh, that. Of course, some thinkers would say it's not just European languages, but all languages. Now, these are schema. In other words, they are, they are frameworks that we develop. Now, learning knowledge is as much to do with the schema. In fact, it's got far more to do with the schema than the particular facts. So although um, if you ask me to summarize the plot, let's say of Middlemarch, I would not be able to do it right now, even though I studied Middlemarch in first year at university and no doubt I wrote essays on Middlemarch. Now, the fact that I've forgotten the details of the plot of Middlemarch is, I hope, 
of less, in, less importance than the fact that I would know what to look for and what you would expect me to say in reply to your question, what is the plot of Middlemarch? And so on. When people are writing um, reviews at the moment of this new film by Christopher Nolan called Tenet, uh, the only criticism I've seen is the criticism that they're it's all plot and it's no character. No, I've not seen the film, so I don't know whether that's a valid criticism or indeed whether it's a relevant criticism, but I know what is meant when there is a debate by a critic about a comment by a critic that there is all plot and no character or alternatively that there's there's a lot of both. So that's the first that's the first and most important thing. I think that runs through a lot of the comments, that knowledge is not just facts. And that's one of the reasons why we can certainly say that knowledge is not just exams and knowledge is not just worksheets. Of course it's not. The problem with exams actually, although they do potentially test um, how the student grasps a schema, a well-designed exam can get at that without bothering about the details, our exams have totally deteriorated into a recitation of regurgitated facts. They are almost the opposite of what we would want a proper system of assessment to do. And the same, of course, is true of the worksheets, and that's part of the problem with the online learning. So that's, that's one thing, I think. And I'd say I'll make a second point, and then I'll, then I'll shut up again. It's to do with this whole idea of mental health and self-esteem and well-being and so on. Now, uh, Catherine Eccleston and Dennis Hayes summed this up beautifully in the title of a book they published a few years ago called The Dangerous Rise of Therapeutic Education. I think it was a second edition of that just come out. And that term, therapeutic education, the idea that education is about therapy, is about making people feel good, is about making people's mental health good. That's something that has so much come to dominate. I should say that Eccleston and Hayes published the book, I think, in the early part of the last decade, and yet it's been remarkably prescient of the way things have gone on over the last um, 15 to 20, 20 years. And one of the things that I think should be said, and, and that, that some psychologists and uh, educationalists have said in reply, uh, sorry, in an elaboration of Eccleston and Hayes' uh, ideas, is of course that, 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 that um, one of the things that is most, in the long term, most assured to develop our mental health, whether we're children or not, is of course successfully meeting really serious challenges. So you don't, in fact, improve people's mental health by giving them trivial things to do. You improve it by giving them difficult things to do and in turn then equipping them with the understanding, the knowledge, the schema as well, schemata, to, to be able to address what they're up to. And, and, and so that would be my reply to that, to the whole question of whether we're placing too much emphasis on mental health is to say mental health is not the purpose of education it is an it is almost an incidental outcome of any education worthy its name because we feel good because we've learned things and we understand them we don't we don't feel good in order to learn things we feel good as a result of learning things brilliant okay uh, penny your thoughts yeah i mean i i, I would really um agree with that. I mean, the, I think the point that Marcus and the point that Joanna made are, are, are very interesting on that. And particularly Marcus, in terms of talking about this relationship with home and school, um, because it's an issue that keeps coming up, but isn't, isn't really sort of expressed publicly. But I think that in the no, no to name person scheme, there were a lot of people um, campaign, there were a lot of people talking about the fact that it appeared the Scottish government didn't really recognise the home and the family <clears throat> as something um, that needed a certain degree of protection and uh, needed to be valued uh, for what it brought to the process of, of uh, recreating society, if you like. And the thing that I think is really interesting, if you look at the Ask For Them website, is that it's almost as if parents just instinctively know that their children thrive under pressure. 
they don't they don't need to be told that because that's their lived experience every time they go to a sports club or every, you know that children need and demand pressure in order to learn and that learning does demand a certain amount of discipline and part of the process of education is about accruing the capacity to discipline yourself in order to learn you know even something as basic as reading we know that that's hard work um and there's kind of been an inversion of the way of thinking about things because really what the family provides is a protection from and a, a place where we can go where we perhaps don't necessarily fear under pressure and the responsibility of schools is to expose children to the the pressures of of growing up but somehow schools have got confused about that and quite often in the no to name person campaign it became clear that teachers quite often think that their job is to sort of protect the children either from the world or from their families um, which is an in increasingly um, problematic thing um, and 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 um, schools schools see their role and, and teachers have been encouraged particularly over the last 10 years to see their role in in a very instrumental way so in scotland you quite often talk to teachers where there's a real confusion about their aspiration to bring about equality and social justice in society which is a great aspiration and then the act of making judgments and this is particularly the case in primary education that you know i have been told off for asking for a ranking for my children where they stand in relation to their peers it's considered a, you know an act of um, extreme authoritarianism and tyranny to for me to be asking such a question and there's this sense that parents that want their children to be judged as somehow aggressive and, and problematic and the function of the school is to protect children from that that kind of process of, of judgment and that means that the students then go through school with very rarely being put on the spot so they are judged but it's a secret thing so that there is an assessment made of their abilities but that assessment is a secret assessment it's not even told to the parents so if you look at the curriculum for excellence assessment process it's led to this absolutely bizarre form of reporting whereby we're told that our children are consolidating or secure within a certain band of achievement, which is to do with an expectation of a certain level. And, and teachers aren't allowed to deviate from that script and it's gobbledygook as far as most parents are concerned, unless you're inside the world of education, these kind of assessment things don't mean very much to you. And then all the way up the school and through into secondary education, uh, we're consistently failing to tell the children how they're performing and that then means that by the time they get to university very difficult for them to be mature in relation to criticism they tend to see criticism as almost a personal attack like i've really noticed the difference between my chinese students and the uk students that the chinese students i mean i'm not i'm not advocating for a chinese system but the chinese students understand that criticism of them is an implicit part of the education progress process and will lead to their intellectual progress. UK or particularly in, in Scotland, students tend to be much more defensive about that. And my own children are very defensive. I don't know if that's because of me. Or, but, but I think that we really do have to, this is quite a fundamental question that teachers need to relearn that judgment is a, an excellent part of the education process and 
by making judgments about children's performance, they're not somehow embedding and consolidating social injustice, because it seems to be believed now by a lot of younger teachers. Yes, and it's, it's really quite insidious the way that's happened. I'm, I'm reminded um, just, just then, um, I, I come from a sports background, but I'm reminded of the early sports days in my uh, sons uh, when he was started primary school and they had non-competitive sports days. And I sat in the, the stand watching this um, torture, <laughs> it was torture. But the, the brilliant, the absolutely brilliant thing was that my son and all his friends found ways of making, they wanted to measure themselves against each other. So mm. what they did is they found ways of turning it into a competition. And, and, and that, that was really quite enlightening for me because education mm. isn't just about an opportunity for young people to, you know, he, he, he still goes out the door, he's in third year now, secondary, he still goes out the door ready for the adventure of going to school. Um, and, and in that adventure, you make yourself, you, you learn about yourself, you develop yourself and, and you want to change yourself. But also at the same time, there's a, as, as a, as a, uh, uh, another um, process going on where we as adults, the teachers who are representing us, are also making the next generation. So they need to model the next generation at the same time as those kids are trying to develop themselves as individuals. And that, that for me, kind of links in a little bit to Lindsay's concept of schema and the idea of a narrative, a cultural schema these mm -hmm. days, perhaps. And, and the one in which we're embedding our education system is, is we have a, a narrative of vulnerability. So, so you're, you're, you're vulnerable in terms of failing if you, if you, you're, you're potentially weak. And, and if you, if you don't, if you are, if that, um, if your uh, valid, uh, validity isn't reinforced by your teachers at every point, then somehow you'll succumb. Um, and, and we're vulnerable in terms of, uh, of going into, into social settings now because of COVID. Um, and, and, that seems to be taking over rather than the purpose of education. Um, okay, so uh, moving on, I've got somebody called Pixel. Um, I'm assuming that isn't your first name. Oh, uh, Pixie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm called Toby, not Pixel, um, but that's my phone. Um, just, uh, I, I, just to respond to um, some of the opening comments, and uh, I mean, I, I think my stance on education is it's easy to be negative but actually there's a lot of positive achievements and, and in many ways education is a, a success story um and i I'd, i suppose in that vein i'd like to think about what we've learned educationally from lockdown and and pull some of those things out i mean i think one thing we've learned is the epistemic power of physical congregation i mean it seems undeniably true now that we have to get together as a congregation to develop ideas and to share ideas. Um, and, and, you know, outside of lockdown, that just didn't work in, in education. So we've learned that. I think we've learned how important schools are um, as specialised institutions. Um, and I think related to that, um, how schools are different from the family. Um, and, you know, as Marcus was saying, it's caused no end of conflict in homes trying to turn homes into schools um, during lockdown. And I suppose in relation to all of that, I would just, you know, urge my colleagues, this is, this is a great opportunity really for teachers to really show what, you know, their potential is. Um, and uh, I just, it, it would be a real shame if this was, you know, squandered at this moment. I think there's a, there's a lot of goodwill oriented towards teachers and, and schools at this moment and, and people wanted to succeed. 
And I just hope that we can, you know, be positive about moving that one forward. Brilliant. Okay, um, that was nice and short. I like that. Um, Mev? Um, I've been active in politics for about, well, since 2004. Um, speaking to people on the doorstep, uh, one of the big issues for the large majority of people is education. Um, over the years, I've, I've you know, noted down various reasons people have uh, indicated that they feel that their education system is failing. And two, three years ago, I did a poll on the 10 most common reasons people gave me why they felt that the education system was failing. And the two biggest by far, well over half of voters, named uh, classroom discipline, or the breakdown in classroom discipline as a, a major problem in the education system and unsupported parents to the point, you know, some, some people would say that some parents just didn't care at all about their educational prospects for their kids. Uh, so I'd be very interested in, in the, uh, the speaker's take on, on, on those findings. Okay, great. Um, next, Stuart Baird. Yeah, hi. Uh, it's been great. We've enjoyed the discussion so far. Uh, I'm a bit of a, a frontline worker in regards to being a teacher who's gone through the experience of Curriculum for Excellence going back to the national debate in approximately 2000. And along with the diminishment of knowledge that uh, Lindsay pointed out, it's a very slippery beastie, uh, Curriculum for Excellence, because just when you think you've got a handle on one aspect of it, there's something else in the in between the paragraphs, in between the lines that's, that's there. Uh, so Lindsay and others would know that uh, how, how knowledge is out, values is in, whether that goes back to the original documentation of the values of the Scottish Parliament, uh, the, the mace in the Scottish Parliament, or the drip drip of uh, any father fashion since that period of time from fair trade, five a day, nurture, children's rights, uh, we've got, of course, Black Lives Matter. So there's always this engagement of the fads and fashions of the times and the desire for the, some sort of uh, participation and involvement of the pupils as well. So knowledge may be out, but participation over what's on TikTok or Instagram is in. Uh, and that mirrors also the uh, change in classroom pedagogy that was highlighted through the Curriculum for Excellence. Uh, gone was any... Uh, in any sense that you are going to be uh, you know, standing up in front of a class, a Socratic method and engaging the kids in some sort of uh, dialogue. Uh, we had to have pedagogies based on fun and engagement uh, and play. Uh, and this of course uh, is to kind of removes a, 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 a pressure, uh, removes a, a system of behavior themselves that the kids can learn and engage with. Uh, but it also, uh, uh, it changes the dynamic of the classroom. So we have we have many many uh, threads running through curriculum for excellence and how it impacts on what a school is uh, or school was, and, and, and in a sense could would become, uh, and and a sense that we've got a, a failure of what we might have traditionally called liberal education, the acceptance of that in Scotland, which is which is a crying shame since uh, that was once considered to be one of Scotland's greatest uh, assets. And we have a, an education system which uh, is uh, which feels weak, without authority, and which has to uh, uh, work work with uh, work with what it's the, what it's got in front of it, what it's got in, you know, in the, the climate, rather than being able to be principled and stand up and offer something for itself. And ultimately, the ones that suffer most are the, the actual. Uh, you could say it's the, the working class kids that suffer most when they go to school and they find it's not actually about education anymore. It's about behaviour, it's about values that have to be transmitted towards you. Uh, well, uh, we might have 
and as experienced through lockdown, we have many uh, uh, more affluent, more middle class parents, kids, with a bit more of cultural capital and uh, a sense of uh, uh, of ta staying on task, uh, they can benefit from that. Uh, schools actually work to overcome that, and that's a bit of a division between the house and school. The school is a very democratising uh, element of Scot Scotland, uh, or it was, and uh, by reducing the, 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 the strand of education, for reducing that educational component and pressure and exams and content and knowledge that is all there, then it actually it's oddly works against one of the SNP's key policies, which is to reduce or remove the attainment gap. It can only reinforce the attainment gap. Of course, if you allow 20% increase from working class schools because you don't have exams, uh, then that is perhaps one way that you can reduce an attainment gap. But moving on to the, the present, I mean, I'm quite interested in learning, thinking about what people think about how schools will be moving forward in the immediate future. Uh, we've got a, a, a discussion about what the priorities are from the Scottish exam system. Uh, just now, perhaps uh, our two speakers can, con uh, can contribute on to what they think the priorities in this school year should be for the exam system. Because obviously we have this uh, we have threads where we, we have a discussion about whether, what we should cut from exam content this year, what should be removed just in case. And of course, we've also got the, 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 the looming possibility that we will scrap exams again this year. Uh, uh, how, how firmly should we defend them? Indeed, should we have defended them in the first place? Was it not possible to have socially distanced exams for kids in June? Uh, Moving forward, quickly, it's yeah. moving slightly further forward than that is, is there any desire to use subject knowledge and challenge as a core element of schools and downplay and reduce the, the, the myriad of impacts of, of social influences uh, and fashions that are uh, part of our day-to-day -day school experience? Okay, thanks. Sorry to push you there. Um, uh, another Stuart, Stuart Waiton. Yeah. Um, yeah, my Zoom died briefly. It's, uh, there's a hurricane or something outside. I don't know if that in affects the internet, <laughs> but it seemed to. Um, I, and I wanted to have a little go at Simon, although I know this is a public event, and he said uh, there are no right answers. Uh, well, I think that idea in education has been incredibly destructive, uh, and perhaps we can be a bit more hard-arsed about it and say actually there are some right answers and Lindsay Patterson is right and I don't know if Lindsay is the only person that argues this because he's the only person I hear in public life that does it but this idea that knowledge is central to education should be so obvious you know so obvious that the core of education is a love of your subject the core of what makes you a great teacher that has authority is a passion uh, uh, and depth of knowledge of your subject. And I uh, did never hear that from schools, you know, from my experience with my kids, with head teachers, with who gets promoted, with the nature of teaching, with the way they promote what their school is. As Lindsay says, it's therapeutic to a core. The well-being of my child is, you know, the amount of times I've heard this type of language. And just while my children were going through education, they cut the number of subjects that they had from, I think it was eight to, to six. Mm. I, and the, and the, the head teacher did that 
he was going to have no discussion until I stood up and demanded that there be an explanation for this. Of course, it was irrelevant because the decision had already been made. So in some nice schools, you still do eight or nine subjects. In schools in Dundee, you do six. I did nine in a bog standard comprehensive in North Shields 30 years ago, whenever it was, 35 years ago, actually almost four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I mean it's remarkable it is remarkable and I think it's a real problem because the things that Lindsay just said the things about the schema things about memory these are things that should be part of ordinary people's uh, conceptualization of education it should be normal part of public discourse that we understand what education is. And I just don't think we have that language. We genuinely do not. I mean, I didn't even, I was listening to Lindsay there going, well, that's, that's a good way of thinking about it. You know, and I should, and I'm in bloody education, I'm, I'm a lecturer <laughs> and I've read books on this stuff. Right? And I don't know that. So, and that's appalling that these very basic fundamental building blocks and I think part of the problem is this, you know, not just a wider discussion about relativism, but in society, I think we do have this situation where instead of thinking about what is a worthwhile life, we think about what is a happy life. And that is fundamentally different because a worthwhile life is something that has got substance and depth to it. And increasingly, we have a kind of much more superficial discussion about happiness, which isn't just taking place in schools. It's more generally in society. The government even has a happiness index, for example. So I think it's a wider, broader, cultural, political problem. Uh, but nevertheless, one thing we could try and do is to try and have a, 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 a push to have it uh, recognised what is important in education, which is knowledge, and what knowledge that is. There should be core things that are understood as being vital for education, vital for the humanities, vital for the sciences, and also understanding what is education in terms of memory, in terms of schema, in terms of what do we mean by knowledge and education? That could be a start. Thanks. I'm going to bring Anne in in a second, but um, we've got about half an hour of discussion still to go. So if there's something burning in your head that you want to ask or you want to get out there, get it out soon so people have a chance to kind of respond to it. Um, so after Anne, I'm going to bring uh, Penny and Lindsay uh, back in as well. So Anne or Harley? Which yes. you are. It's, it's Harley here. Um, so uh, the curriculum for excellence has been getting a lot of stick from people tonight. And if I had a stick here, I'd be uh, applying it too, because I, uh, I think the skills-led uh, approach is very misguided. But I work in education um, uh, publishing down in London. And I can tell you that, that most of the teachers and educationalists that I know are, are very rueful about the knowledge-led turn that um, education in England took um, around the same time, sort of 2010-ish, um, under Gove. Um, and they look wistfully and, and uh, enviously upon the Scottish curriculum for, ex for excellence. Um, and uh, I'm curious to know what teachers on the north of, north of the border uh, think about it, are they broadly supportive or not? Um, and just my other point really is that, that, that uh, um, 
not all knowledge-led educations are equal. And I th we spend, I, I'm an organiser for the Academy of Ideas Education Forum, and we spend a lot of time talking about how, um, about the, the, the really, that the, the knowledge-led approach in, in, in England has sort of become a bit of a parody of itself, um, in, in that uh, it's not flowing organically from teacher and adult um, knowledge and authority, but it has become a bit of a checkbox authoritarian, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, accountability gone mad where teachers have to follow scripts in many cases and aren't able to, uh, to take, follow interesting diversions that might come up in the course of a natural lesson that we, we might think of as, as being a, a knowledge led uh, lesson. So how the question is, how do you, if we agree or if some of us agree that knowledge led approach is better, how do we stop it becoming the sort of uh, the thing that all its critics say it is? Okay, right. Thanks for that. So um, we'll bring Lindsay back in to answer some of these questions and, and, and see what he's thinking so far and then Penny and then we'll dive back out to Richard. Okay, so I, Lindsay. Yeah, thank you. Um, of course, not answering questions are uh, unanswerable, some of them, because they're big and eternal questions. Of course, that is another way in which they are right. The questions are right to be asked and that's one way of interpreting Stuart Waitham's important point. There are right things to do in education and some of these right things to do are asking the right questions which we've stopped asking for the first time in European culture for about two and a half thousand years. So that, that's a very serious issue. But let me get, I think, three points here actually. Um, the first point is a specific question about the, the question of discipline. Now, there is no doubt that discipline has deteriorated. There's good, there's good evidence on that, actually. Um, the, the real dis, the, the deterioration of discipline is not the high stakes stuff, sorry, the high profile stuff, the, the actual violence. It's the drip, drip, drip of minor disruption. That's what any teacher will anecdotally say is the thing that really wears them down. And it's confirmed by systematic research of various kinds, both in Scotland and it has to be said elsewhere and indeed not just elsewhere in the UK but actually right across Europe and North America. So this is a problem that is not just about schools. I don't think it's a problem primarily about schools. It's a good example of how society impinges on schools all the time. I suspect that many parents encountered this during during the lockdown because of course keeping children on task when the lives of children are increasingly driven by short-term stimulus is a, extremely difficult and um, the, 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 I mean <laughs> I had a lot of sympathy with all the young people in Scotland and England, also in the UK in the last few weeks, faced with a situation with the A-levels and hires. And I don't, we can talk about that if we want to, but the thing that has made me most, and this is not a criticism of their concerns, not a criticism of the inadequacies of the algorithms, I certainly have not refrained from criticizing them, but what did dismay me was the idea that this problem could be sorted instantly, that somebody would press a button, um, John Swinney or, 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 or Gavin Williamson or Nicholas Sturgeon or Boris Johnson would press a button and hey presto, by magic, everything would be okay again. And it's that sense of instant gratification that I think teachers find most challenging. Now, I don't think there is an easy answer to that actually, although what I do think is certainly the case that one inevitable, um, one, one, one almost guarantee of that kind of minor indiscipline, the disruption, the talking out of turn, the fidgeting, is, is a boring lesson. And if you don't give children stimulating things to do, things that challenge them and keep them on task, then they are going to be disruptive because children don't sit still very easily. So that's, I do think there's a link, but it's more complicated than simple rhetoric would apply. So that's the first of three points. Second of three points is the wonderful phrase that Toby used, which I, I, I think should be emblazoned all over the place, the epistemic power of physical congregation. I think that's an absolutely beautiful phrase. I wish the management of my university would learn this, by the way. Edinburgh University is as shut down today as it was on the 26th of March. There is absolutely nothing 
open. And indeed, if we look at the so-called alternative SAGE group chaired by Sir David King um, in London, they seem to be recommending that universities should never open again physically, except for obvious things like laboratories and medical work and, and animal work and so on. In other words, that we don't need physical congregation. And then if we ask this question, why is it throughout the 800-year-old hist history of European universities, the first thing that happened in Bologna and Paris and Oxford and then every, every other place that spawned this was a social life, cafes and bars and restaurants and pubs and all these things that we, we think of as incidental to student life, but they're actually as important to what goes on in a university as any of the formal things that people like me would tend to do. Um, the students talking to each other is part of learning and that physical congregation, whether it's in the nursery school, the primary school, or right through into the voluntary kind of um, coming together in conversations that students would have at university, that matters enormously. And I hope we have learned that in this lockdown, that online learning is rubbish compared to that unstructured, unpredictable dialogue. Now, the dialogue can't take place in an educationally meaningful way unless people spend a lot of time on their own quietly learning knowledge. But then the embedding of knowledge, the entrenchment of knowledge, the entrenchment of the schema through which we remember knowledge happens very often through the dialogue. That's why when often we, we, we try ideas out, we realize we haven't understood things precisely because it's the dialogue that asks questions. That's the second or the third point. The third point is this, the third last point just now, is a point that Tim, um, that both Stuart Baird and Stuart Whitten made actually, which is about the um, liberating power of knowledge and um, the old idea of liberal education. Now, one of the great tragedies, and this is a political point now actually, one of the great tragedies of, um, I think, of, 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 of European and North American thought, and I would emphasize this is not the case in China or India uh, or anywhere else, I think probably that, that education is thought about. In European and North American thought in the last, say, 50 years, is the betrayal by the political left of the tradition of liberal education. If you go back to see what was being said about education in the 1920s, 1930s, right through to about the 1950s, you find that left-wing thinkers were the main exponents of the idea that a properly democratic education should extend liberal education to everyone. Their criticism of the old systems, the hierarchical selective um, elite um, minority systems, was not the content of the curriculum, but the fact that the curriculum was only provided to the elite, to 5% at most of the population. And their argument was always that the purpose of a democratic education system should be to extend that, the best that has been thought and said in Matthew Arnold's famous terms, the best, extend the best that has been thought and said to everyone. And that's what ultimately gave us mass higher education and mass comprehensive education and so on. And yet, since the 1960s, the left in Britain and North America, in both parts of North America, but also increasingly in France and Germany, in Italy, has betrayed that. They have said that the problem is the curriculum, they label it as white, male, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, whatever abusive term is currently fashionable. But it's not a curriculum for everyone, it's a curriculum only for a minority that produced it. As opposed to the, the aspiration of all human knowledge is whatever demographic characteristic you come from, the aspiration is to produce universal knowledge that is accessible to everyone. Now I'm glad to say of course that many people from um, the, the, the groups that claim that are claimed by the, that sort of left-wing thought not to be served by that kind of curriculum argue vociferously that they are. Um, Trevor Phillips, for example, being one of the most distinguished recently arguing that of course we all have to aspire to inherit the best that has been thought and said in all cultures, not just European culture, but of course cultures from right across the world. But the principle of the best that has been thought and said is one that the left has abandoned, along with the idea that there's a right and a wrong, an up and a down, a good and a bad. And it seems to me, if I were to say, what was the greatest betrayal 
of left-wing politics in the last 50 years, it would be that, the abandonment of liberal education. And with that, Lindsay lays down a gauntlet to quite a few people listening. I'm sure there must be people that have uh, got thoughts about that. So stick your hands up if you can. Um, right, Penny and then Richard. Yeah, I really, um, I really agree with those points that Lindsay's just made. Um, I mean, it, it strikes me that one of the retreats that have been made by the left, um, and that's had a big impact on education in Scotland, um, it's not just the sort of retreat from the idea of judgment as part of education, uh, but also the idea that somehow education is a mechanism to change the world. And that always seems like an abdication of responsibility to me. Um, like in my discipline in architecture, lots of architects spend time and energy trying to get into primary schools to tell people about the importance of design. And I always find this very strange that we've become used to this idea that if you want to change something about adult society, the secret is to go in and get the kids young. And nobody thinks that that's quite sort of aggressive and a, a bit uh, dogmatic or tyrannical that you go in and you tell the children what they should think. But I do think that we need to readjust our understanding of how you change things and make much clearer lines and say schools, schools are actually about us understanding what we know now and as the world understanding the world as it is now and politics is the mechanism where adults come together and try to change things and if that's failing which clearly it is failing at the moment then we need to reinvigorate politics not start messing around with the curriculum um, in order to tell the kids what the party line is and insist that they grow up with with that because it demeans uh, the process of education to do that and it confuses um, adult responsibility and kind of projecting adult responsibility onto schools the whole time it's a, a very very bad thing just on the the person I, I don't know whether it's in the in the speech or in the text sort of saying parents don't care there have been a few people saying that I mean I, in a way I don't kind of it doesn't surprise me I think it's bad that parents don't care about education but it also doesn't surprise me because politically we don't take education very seriously and as I said at the beginning the Scottish government has been riding on the fact that it doesn't charge tuition fees for far too long and uh, if you look at the heads of the universities um, the teaching unions various institutions that you would expect to be really flying the banner for a higher quality of education and the uh, assertion of academic freedom and the importance of knowledge, they're not doing it. So we need to really sort of, um, I think, think about those organizations and hold them a bit more to account on, on this front. Uh, as people have said, we need a better vocabulary, but I think that all of that parental er energy that was expressed to getting the schools open could now be put to some very good use to be more demanding on the Scottish Government. Okay, thanks Penny. Um, I, I'm, I'm not very good at multitasking here and I'm looking at the chat and there is a, a couple of raging debates going there and I'd really urge people that are chatting, the, uh, typing these comments to try and come in, I, I, express yourself because you know we've still got 20 minutes where we can um, take on some of these questions and, 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 and bash them around. Um, Right, so uh, Richard Lucas next, please. 
Uh, thanks. I think a lot of the issues we've been talking about, they're issues of balance, aren't they? Like knowledge and skills. You don't want to go too far one way, you don't want to go too far the other way. We talked about the well-being as opposed to challenge. We talked about schools imposing a particular set of like moral values or you know, leaving parental influence there. We talked about discipline. I mean, you, you could go down punishment, you go more down counseling, you need a balance. We talked about children's rights. You want a balance between adult authority and children's rights. With all these things, you want to find the right balance. Well, it seems to me in Scotland, the idea that you need a balance seems to have completely gone out the window. It's just a one-way street. It's we push in one direction, and if it's not working, the solution is always, well, we just need to push even further in the same direction. There's no consideration that, oh, hang on, we might be going the, right, the wrong way. Maybe we need to turn around and go back. It's just always we just haven't gone far enough. I haven't taught for a couple of years, but my experience teaching was that there was a huge willingness and pressure, I suppose, on teachers to conform to the, the latest ideas, to the general direction of education. But I used to find I'd go to um, training things, training events, and the person would be giving their spiel. And eventually I might put my hand up and say, no, I don't quite see it like that. I think maybe I'd see it more like this. There'd be this sort of uncomfortable silence in the room. And the person leading it would sort of try and oh, oh, yeah, sort of, you know, dismiss what I said as soon as possible, and just get on with, with what they're saying. You know, thank goodness that was over and done with. Then we get to break time. You have a cup of tea, go into the gents. People would be saying, oh, quite agree with you. Absolutely. You tell him. I, th I think you're absolutely right. This is a lot of nonsense, isn't it? You know, person after person would say that. Then you go back into the second half and all the teachers are sitting there again, nodding away, taking notes. No one will, will say a thing. And I think that group thing is so extreme now. I think when the, I mean, if you say they, the Conservative Party, for example, I think when they look at education, they think that the body of teachers, thousands and thousands of them, their views are so uniform that if you challenge it, that's politically quite risky. So in the Scottish Parliament, we've got 129 MSPs, a lot of which are experts at seeing what's wrong with education, but they can't critique the philosophy and the underlying direction that it's taking because either they don't see it or they think it's too controversial. Then you've got Education Scotland imposing these values really vigorously on schools. Um, you know, if a school was to say, you know, we've decided we're going to back off a bit on well-being this year. We think we were a bit over, top of the, over the top of it last year. I mean, you just forget it. That school would be finished. Same for teachers. If you say you know, there are too many controversial things, that, that's your career over if you're not towing the line. And I think the pressure on schools and the pressure on teachers to adopt this group think, it, it's not just to be part of the crowd. It becomes like moral pressure. It's the way Scottish Direction's heading is the way that any nice person would think it ought to head. And if you challenge any of one of, the, one of those experts, one of those, um, one of those aspects, you're really showing yourself to be either you know, not very caring or not very enlightened. I think it's a really situation that uh, um, we're in situation, this lack of balance. I mean, for, um, uh, for Lindsay, I, I just, I mean, do you ever get depressed feeling that no one's listening to you in Scottish <laughs> education? <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. I'm going to just go to Annette next, but there's a kind of discussion around um, uh, skills versus knowledge. Are we setting up a false dichotomy here? Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure people who are having this debate will be much better than me at raising it and explaining it. But um, sh surely a good teacher will be able to blend uh, skills and knowledge into a lesson successfully. Um, uh, are, are we setting up a false dichotomy in terms of the abandonment of one for the other? 
Okay, um, Annette. Thank you. Um, I think what you, your, your question that you just gave there, I think was answered by the, the second Stuart, um, who mentioned the fact of um, an excellent teacher is somebody who's passionate about their subject, who's got depth of knowledge of their subject and who's passionate about it. And I wouldn't for a moment suggest that young teachers today aren't in that category, but they are constantly being pressurised, and, and it ties in what Richard was saying, um, about groupthink, about they have to do certain things and well-being and nurture and values and all this is coming in um, and that they're not getting the chance to be passionate about their subject. Um, a couple of, of points, uh, Penny mentioned a way back about reports and that there was a couple of comments uh, supporting it. Can I say that it needs to be the parents, it needs to be parents constantly complaining about the gobbledygook reports. She's right, she's 100% right. In many schools, I, I can't speak for all schools obviously, but in many schools it's this, uh, words, words really fail me for it, but this kind of stuff that's put in about strengths and areas for development. And in some cases I have seen the situation where even if you say a child is um, fidgety, a child is uh, reluctant to, uh, to get on with their work, a child is slow to get started, that these comments are being pulled. So the teacher, again going back to Richard's point, is it's very difficult for a young teacher to stand up and say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to argue with you over that. And anybody who's wanting to get on, it's difficult to go against the, 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 main, the main thinking. Um, I think um, one of the, in my view, one of the uh, quite amusing, uh, in some ways, if there is any amusement in it, uh, side effects of going back to school just now is that we are back in pupils sitting in rows being taught by a teacher. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that that in itself um, might actually be quite beneficial for some pupils in some areas at some times. Um, and the other thing, I, I, a couple, sorry, a couple of other things which I'll, I'll go quickly. Um, Lindsay mentioned at the beginning about um, the SQA and last year's reports and talking about regurgitating, uh, the, uh, pupils regurgitating content. And one of the things that's been pushed a lot in schools, and I've got nothing against it per se, um, Bloom's taxonomy, which has got remember that, that the bottom and create at the top if you use bottom and top or preferred and not preferred um, and in my opinion looking at the pupils they are having to memorize more and more and more they they memorize a french essay and, and and do that in their exam they memorize their history assignment that they do as a write-up they memorize their english essay um, and, and it seems to me that they have very little in actual fact creative thought under the, the current system that we're in. My last point, I promise, is I don't understand why there's not been any questioning of the fact that the teachers' estimate grades were so at odds with the, the grades that, that came from the, the algorithm. Now, the algorithm obviously had some kind of kinks in it. But why, I think Fiona Robertson of SQE said that normally it's something like 50% of teachers' estimates are, are accurate. So why is nobody questioning this? Why is nobody going back to, to schools and saying um, there's something wrong in the way in which you're estimating these things? And it would take you to National 4, but I'll, I'll not mention that one. Uh, thank you. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Alistair Donald next, please. 
Um, thanks, Simon. Uh, I found a very useful discussion, actually, with a lot of depth to it. And I think uh, that the, the points on knowledge and judgment that uh, Lindsay and Penny were making were really useful. And some of the stuff about the uh, framework of well-being and, 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 and the way that that destroys a kind of capacity for engagement was also very useful. But it's also been quite a pessimistic discussion in a way, especially in terms of the... Uh, um, the policies, curriculum for excellence and all that, and, and uh, the institutional uh, involvement and direction as well. And Penny has added to that in the, in, uh, in the last contribution by um, also saying that there doesn't seem to be a demand, a political demand or even an individual demand from parents and, 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 and what have you for uh, an upping of quality in education. So I just wanted to ask, um, First of all, is, is it as bleak as that? Are there any uh, redeeming factors in this? Anything that we can seize onto and use as, as, as a kind of hopeful out, outlook for gaining something better? And I, I kind of wondered if Lindsay uh, shared that bleak assumption as well. Okay, and Andrea. I'm just a parent. I'm really nobody on this very learned panel. I mean, what, what, what am I talking about? Just my experience, I've got two kids. One is about to finish primary school and the other one is slightly younger. And I often ask myself, what is actually the added value that the school has provided, is providing my kids? I mean, if my kids hadn't gone to school at all, zero, would that have made any difference? Okay, they would have grown anyway. They would have learned anyway. So what is, what is it that the school has given them that they wouldn't have got anyway without having, go, having, having to go through the hassle of going to school every single day, put a uniform on and go through the routine of this and that and the other? I really, I really don't know because talking about very basic knowledge that I would expect in my ignorance and my, I don't know, backwards ways, you would have thought that children leaving primary school would be, I don't know, conversant in times tables. Or, now the phone is ringing and we'll shut this down, go away. Uh, I can't, anyway. Um, times tables, fractions, spelling, grammar, I don't know, I mean, very basic things. And, but no. And I would like to point out that my kids are, according to the teacher, top of the class. And my school has been just ranked excellent. So this is as good as it is going to get. Go away, phone. My school is as good as it gets. So in our case, that's the way I feel. And I have put across this point with the teachers over and over again, but to not avail. I mean, there was a brick wall. There was not a conversation, a conversation to be had. I said, what, what do children do at school? Total mystery to me. Uh, who was that Marcus? And I was nodding furiously when he was talking. I've just absolutely no idea what the school are doing. And when uh, uh, distance learning came about, there was a reinforcement of that. I mean, the parents was to be kept aside. The school knows better. So anyway, sorry for the phone and for the light. So that was pretty much what I was wanting to vent about, if anything else. So perhaps someone can enlighten me on this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to bring in Mev uh, in a second and then uh, go back to uh, Lindsay and Penny to 
bring in with their, 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 their summarizing comments. Um, but ju just in terms of answering that last question, but the, during lockdown, it, 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 my family experience was that it started off quite well. I've got two good kids up at nine, working solidly through to three. Maybe I'm just a grumpy head teacher um, of the homeschool, but I, I, I made them work. But to, you know, halfway through and beyond, their, their demeanor really changed. Um, the youngest one was very socially isolated. My, my teenager um, became really grumpy and, and just not himself, but within, and I was worried about that. You know, I was worried about this kind of mental health issue around lockdown and, and, and you know, forgetting about their, their actual knowledge learning and their skills learning. Um, I was worried about their, their mental health. Within two days of going back to school, they were both absolutely fine and, and, and back to their jovial, um, happy-go-lucky selves. So um, wh whether, whether the mental health stuff was over-egged or, or not, um, I think that's what kids get out from being at school. The, the physical congregation element that's been raised is not only a good place to learn, but it's a good place to, to socialize, to be, to be culturally, to exist. Um, because that's what we are, we're, we're, um, uh, uh, we're social individuals. And, and I suppose one question of, of people that might know, I would ask is how does that blended learning, that, that kind of approach between online and face-to-face -face and, and or the, the kind of the physical corollary of that, which would be the masks uh, impact, how, how does that uh, impact on the uh, um, physical congregation? So um, that was my top answer. Uh, Mev, and then back to uh, Lindsay and Penny in that order to summarize, and then I've got a few things to say. I just wanted to expand on a point uh, a couple of the other participants mentioned in terms of groupthink. Uh, 10 years ago, I used to write for the Police Professional magazine, and um, around about that time, Loaded and Borders Police, as it was in those days, reorganized uh, Edinburgh Police. And what uh, happened was, there was a very controversial reorganisation. Most officers took the view it didn't work. But what they found is when they applied for promotion and went to the uh, interview board, they'd be asked about their views on the effectiveness of the reorganisation. And what happened was if you criticised the reorganisation, you didn't get the promotion. If you said it was great sentence, vice president got promotion. And police officers very quickly caught on to this and they called it rank speak, i.e. if you want to gain rank, you have to say this daft idea, this disastrous reorganization is working fine, tell the senior officers what they want to hear and you'll get your promotion. Is rank speak or, or groupthink an issue in the education system? Okay, brilliant. Thank you. I'm going to go to Lindsay then Penny um, just to give us their, their summarizing thoughts. But cl clearly we're not, this, this debate isn't finished. Um, and uh, there, there's an Academy of Ideas education forum which people can try and find <coughs> online and sign up for where they can pursue um, this kind of discussion and others associated with education more specifically. Um, right, uh, Lindsay. Thank you. Yeah, this has been a fantastic discussion. I really enjoyed it. Let me just make, I think, um, four summarising points. I mean, obviously, the, the thing that perhaps I need to say at least about is that there seems to be general agreement that knowledge is what education should be about. Of course, the people participating this evening have been self-selected, but it is very interesting, actually, that there's been a general consensus along these lines. Unfortunately, it's not, of course, a consensus in the wider society. And I don't really think, in fact, that the people in charge of education 
really would understand what we're going on about this evening, sadly. And I don't mainly mean the politicians, at least the politicians, the ones that listen, are aware that these are other alternative points of view. Um, the, the really damning group are those in charge of the quangos that run the education system in Scotland, the Education Scotland, the SQA, the bureaucracies of many of the local authorities, not all, but some of, most of them, and in the equivalent bodies in, in England. Um, they have lost all touch with the notion that education is about knowledge. You look, for example, at um, the evidence submitted to the House of Commons inquiry into the, the potential A-level disaster which came about, which was published in early July. You look at the evidence submitted by these kind of bodies. It's completely oblivious to these kind of debates we're having this evening. And then most recently in Scotland, you look at what happened when the chief executive of the Scottish Qualifications Authority and their head of qualifications, that's Fiona Robertson and Jill Stewart, appeared before the Scottish Parliament's Education Committee um, about two weeks ago. And um, you, you, would, you would be forgiven for thinking that these people had never actually had anything to do with education ever, because they had nothing to say about education in the way that we talk about it this evening. So although we might agree this evening that, that knowledge is important, I don't think that's widely understood. Related to that, there's also a point that's been going down the sidebar of comments, and we haven't had time to discuss this, which is the relationship between knowledge and skills. I think that's absolutely crucial. I would say only one and rather trite thing about that. You can't have skills without knowledge, but you can't have knowledge without skills. So knowledge is a necessary step towards good skills. That, by the way, is well understood by good vocational training. I would thoroughly recommend, for example, the report which Professor Alison Wolfe wrote on vocational education in England, commissioned by the coalition government. I think it was published in 2011. It's still there on the Department for Education website, Alison Wolf, W-O-L-F. Um, and it's a great book or well, report because it actually says this, that knowledge is necessary for good quality vocational training and that Germany does it because Germany is rather good at getting knowledge into its vocational courses. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is this is partly an answer to Andrea's point. It, what is the value added of schools? I would say two things. One is experts. Teachers are or ought to be experts. And that is actually, by the way, as true of primaries as it is of secondaries. We, we created schools historically as a mechanism by which to pass on the expertise of society to the next generation. And schools have become wider and wider in doing that. The only threat to that, of course, is that we've also in the last 50 years gradually come to define teachers not as experts in knowledge, but as at best experts in child development and at worst sources of well-being. Now I don't think either of these is anywhere near an adequate definition of what a teacher is. Of course teachers have to understand about child development, about how children learn, but that's a means to the end of conveying the knowledge which education should be about. And if teachers simply become social workers, then they are no longer teachers and in fact they'd be better to leave the job to social workers who at least have a specialist training in how to do social work really well. So that's I think that's the major thing that we get as added value in schools. But the secondary thing we get in added value in schools is again, to quote, um, to quote Toby's comment, which is about the, the, the value of, 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 of physical congregation, coming together in conversation about the things that you've learned and in the conversation, learn, learning that you've not quite learned it and then refining your learning in response to the conversations, for example, of the kind that we've had this evening. Although it has to be said, however excellent uh, this evening has been, nevertheless, it would be far better if we were in the same room together. We would all, I think, think that we'd learnt more if we'd actually been physically together. That's the second of the four points. The third of the four points is actually to, to go on from that point about physical congregation to say that that actually is what used to be meant by the Socratic 
approach. The idea that we, the best way of learning things is to be asked insistent questions about what we're trying to learn is really very good indeed. And the really brilliant teachers are those which make sure that every student in the classroom knows that instinctively, that asking questions is a form of education itself. And of course, a well-educated class then becomes an aid to the teacher because the students ask each other questions. Now, actually, I sometimes think that, in fact, that happens despite the teacher. Certainly, I, I never feel that I've actually ever managed to bring that about, but I do know when I'm sitting in a tutorial with students who are really engaged and knowledgeable and like the subject that I am teaching, that the class is far more exciting for everyone, including me. And usually it happens, as I say, despite what I do and certainly independently of what I do. I don't really know then how to bring that about but what we should be saying over and over again is that asking questions is the best way to ground our knowledge because that's the way to correct our errors and that then brings me to the final point the last point um richard lucas asked if um if, he, if we were all being too sorry some he asked if i ever feel pessimistic and other people have said is there anything ever going well sorry i haven't noted who it was that said that alistair donald that's right is, is there any reasons for optimism well i don't know i mean i what i would say about optimism is, an ex is, 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 is exemplified in what I've just said. Some young people survive the destruction of knowledge remarkably well. They come to a university like Edinburgh with a passion for learning, they read things spontaneously, and they come and bring these into discussion. And when I'm sitting with a group of people like that, I can feel optimistic that education can be put back on track. But then I remember how remark how outrageously selective Edinburgh University is and I don't mean mainly here the academic selection it's the social selection that goes along with the academic selection and I think about all these people who didn't make it to that point who for all sorts of reasons didn't get enough hires even to get into university and even if they did get enough hires not being able to come to a place where they would meet people from all over the world who spontaneously and enthusiastically read things of the kind that I think everybody here tonight would want us all to be reading as part of our education and I think the only chance that people outside that select group have to have access to education of a decent sort is schools. And if we are betraying the knowledge that is required in a proper curriculum in our schools, then we're actually cutting people off from the kind of voluntary progress that they might make when they find that education, when entered into voluntarily, can, be, can, make, them, can, can make them excited and they can engage in, in it really enthusiastically. So I have that bit of optimism and saying it is possible i see young people who do it i see them every year they come and they do it enthusiastically despite the schools but i still remain overwhelmingly pessimistic because the group of young people who have the chance to do that is still very tiny indeed thank you that was very good uh, penny um on the blended learning question i mean i i taught have just taught a whole semester in China using the internet of, of a practical subject, a design subject, and um, there are lots of limitations to it, but there's also lots of possibilities. I mean, the one thing that we found is that teaching online allowed us to share the criticism that we made of individuals design work with all of the other students. So what normally happens in a architectural studio is that you have one-to-one -one discussions with students about their work and then you go to the next student and you have a very similar discussion and, and so on and actually we were able to use the technology of Zoom to make sure that they learned from the criticisms we were making of all the other students so that was very productive 
Um, there are difficulties in terms of model making, but the students are so versatile that they can make models out of anything and they can use film to show us the spatial qualities of the models they produce. So I'm pretty positive about the possibilities of the technology, while at the same time, I'm 100% with Lindsay about how we need to apply pressure on the universities to make sure that they don't eradicate face-to-face. -face. They, they seem to think that face-to-face -face is not as significant as it, as it actually is. And one of the reasons for that is that they know that staff have very high workloads and they know that workload is going to be increased through the online teaching. And so they're kind of pulling back from the face-to-face -face, uh, as a way to address that problem. They're also, um, because the universities are quite overcrowded, already short of space, uh, and they're not really going all out to find new space that will allow students to meet for peer-to-peer -peer relations. And I think, again, we in the universities could be putting pressure on to make sure that um, there are as many opportunities as possible for students to meet informally, that canteens are kept open and, and that kind of thing. Um, I think the other thing we can do is demand that the Scottish Government drops the two metre rule because that's going to make it very difficult for universities to be places of congregation and one metre would be absolutely fine. I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but I know that if they can do it in England, they could do it in Scotland. Um, as well. So that would be my more upbeat take on the on the possibilities of the technology. Um, I mean, I, I suppose when I was talking about maturity, and the reason I talked about the home and the process of education is because to me, knowledge isn't just about um, the accumulation of everything we understand and know about the world. It, it is that, but it's also uh, the process of trying to get to grips with that is what makes us adults. And what's unique about adults and different from children is that we have a responsibility to determine what the world's like. What children can't do is really control the nature of society, but we can. And at the moment, it's a, a moment where we feel quite alienated from that process. And I. To me, education is about making us adults as well as it uh, about trans transferring knowledge from one generation to another. And, and I feel quite strongly that we should stick up for that because I think that there's a danger at the moment that we're making young people perpetually adolescent, that they never are able to escape from that. And, they, and they're not really seeing role models in us of people uh, that are trying to take responsibility for making the world as they want it to be. So I, I, I think, I'm not pessimistic, I just think this is a complex question and the solution to it will be when adults step forward and make these criticisms in public and think about how we can make demands um, to make, make the situation better. And I'm so encouraged by organizations like us for them because there's hundreds or thousands of parents feel instinctively, very strongly, that education is important. Um, so I'm not saying it's doom and gloom, I'm saying let's develop the vocabulary and the understanding so that we can make these arguments um, for why education is important. And I don't believe that our existing politicians are going to do that because they've proved themselves inadequate up to now. So we, we need to start generating that kind of impetus and that kind of leadership and that kind of demonstration of what it means to be an adult um, as soon as possible. 
And as far as schools are concerned, um, teachers should be encouraged through teacher training and through every mechanism available to understand exactly what their role is. It is to make judgment, it is to pass on knowledge, and it is to a certain extent to be conservative to create adults who are then responsible for change in the world, not to try and indoctrinate our children in what they believe is a correct set of values. That's, that, that's been really useful, uh, both Lindsay and Penny. Um, how do you clap? <laughs> on Zoom, did you do it? Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, that, that, that's really, really useful. And um, you know, whilst uh, I mean, people can clap. Um, unmute everybody, Mo, and then we can even hear me. <laughs> Everybody's away. Um, so that, that that that's brilliant. And uh, whilst they're...